This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, New Life. Uh, It's great to be back with you. If we missed each other last week, my wife and I had been in India for a few weeks, and so for some of you, we haven't seen each other for a month or more, and man, I have missed you, and it's just so good to be back with my community. I loved worshiping with churches and being with churches all around the world, but to be back with our church is just something so special and unique about that, and I love it. So I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, My name is Kevin, if we hadn't had a chance to meet yet. If you're new with us, I just want to say welcome. It's great to have you with us. I know that there are a thousand other things you could be doing today, but you chose to come and you chose to explore your faith, and I commend you for that. You chose to open yourself up to a new situation with new people, with new experiences, and I'm trusting that God will meet you there. So I want you to know, if you're new to New Life, we created this place for you, to be a place where you could come and it would be safe to explore the realities of God and what he's doing in your life. And I hope that at some point today, through a song, through a prayer, through a a hug that you receive from someone in the lobby, through something that I say, that God will grab you and his love will just, will, will so encompass you that it will drive you to him and cause you to open yourself up completely to him. Because that's what we're doing. We're on a journey of opening ourselves up completely to God and allowing him to guide us. Uh, And if you're a guest with us today, by the way, um, we have a gift for you at the end of the day. So if nothing else, listen, it's like Christmas every Sunday here at New Life for our guests. Like you get new stuff. We love it. There's a bag in the lobby that says guest gift. It is yours. No strings attached. You don't even have to come back. Although I would really love it if you came back because we would love to share life with you. Uh, When you came in this morning, all of us should have received this program. Inside of it, there are a few things you're going to want. Your teaching notes, um, which is not this. Your teaching notes, which look like this. You're going to want them because we are covering a lot today. There's some scripture in here you're going to want to look at. Uh, There's some pieces that you're going to want to take home and wrestle with throughout the week. So make sure you grab that and start working with that, especially if you are a note taker or uh, you just like to have it in front of you. And then the second thing is these cards that say start here. These are our connection cards. They help us connect with you. They'll help you connect with the community. Ultimately, our goal is to help you connect with God. And so we use these cards to respond to prayer requests, to respond to questions that you have to help you get connected to God. And we ask everyone, every single person in our church, every man, woman, and child who's in the service each week to fill out this card to let us know what's going on in your life so we can be praying for you, we can be connecting with you. So make sure that you fill that out in a little bit. Some baskets will be passed. You can drop those cards right in. We're on this journey uh, that we're calling Not a Fan, and our church is going through this for a number of weeks. All of our life groups, which are small groups that meet together weekly, and we have over 30 of them, they're going through the same curriculum, and we're asking one foundational question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus as opposed to just a fan? As opposed to someone who, who comes to church and sings the songs and knows the things to say, but, but hasn't really fully surrendered themselves to God in a way that it makes any real impact in their lives. And so we're going through different areas of what that looks like, and we're, we're asking ourselves, I'm not going to do it for you, I'm just asking you to hold up a mirror to yourself as we go through these topics and say, am I truly deeply following Jesus, or am I more of a fan in that area? And then we're saying any area that I think, yeah, I'm kind of a fan, that we would move into a place of knowing Jesus and trusting him enough to follow. And as I was preparing the message for today, I was struck by the fact that uh, I am a person who loves comfort. And I didn't think that I was because, you know, I like to go out and camp and do stuff like that. But overall, the overarching theme of my life 
I like comfort. There's a, a restaurant in Roanoke Park called El Tapatio. It is, in my opinion, the best Mexican restaurant uh, in this great state of California. And many people would disagree with me. But here's why it's the best restaurant for me. I've been going there since I was 18 years old. I've been going there for 14 years. And when I was single, I would go there at least once a week. So we're talking 10 years once a week at this restaurant. And it's known. I get the same thing every time because it's comfortable. Uh, there might be better, better menu options, but for me, a super burrito, carne asada from El Tapatio with four salsas, that's the way to go every time. I just like what's known. I like what's comfortable. Uh, back in August, I ruptured my Achilles tendon playing soccer, and they put a huge cast on it, and the doctor said, you need to sleep on the left side of the bed so that your leg can stick out. I am a right side of the bed sleeper. And I did not like that because it was uncomfortable. I spent the first seven years of my marriage sleeping on one side of the bed. That is my side of the bed. The other side is my wife's side of the bed. And when I had to switch, I knew it was right. I knew it was good for me. My leg had to stick out, but it was uncomfortable. And, and I like comfort. And I think maybe that you can relate to this because I see people making a ton of money to help us become more comfortable. Uh, memory foam is, is a million-dollar-a-year industry because our, our mattresses aren't quite comfortable enough. And then uh, they went a step further, and you can do temperature-controlled, you know? So it's like, honey, your side of the bed's a little too warm. Your side's a little too cold. And some of you husbands are saying, honey, warm up your side of the bed. But that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> uh, but think about this. Someone, someone took their bathrobe and they turned it around the other way, and they put their arms through this way, and they called it a Snuggie and made millions of dollars. Why? So that we could be warm and hold our TV controller and our coffee at the same time. All right? You don't want to have to get your hands out of the blanket to drink your coffee. Let's just, let's just take our bathrobe and slip our hands in. We love, we love comfort. Um, we even have two-ply uh, toilet paper, which apparently is not normal all around the world. I found this out in India. In fact, there were places where they had no toilet paper. So uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not down on comfort. I like comfort. I like being comfortable. I like that our country affords us a ton of comfort. Even some of you think, well, I like the end aisle in the church because I like to stretch my legs out. I want comfort. Okay, I'm not against that. Um, but there's a danger in comfort. And the danger in comfort is this. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we translate our desire for comfort into our relationship with Jesus. And we say, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, but I want it to be a comfortable relationship. I want it on my terms. I want to do things the way I've always done them and sprinkle a little Jesus on top. Uh, and last week, we talked about the reality that God, the creator of the universe, he knows you. He knows you intimately and deeply and fully, and he knows everything you've ever done or said or thought. He, he loves you sometimes because of that, sometimes despite that. He just has this incredibly deep love for you, and the incredible thing is he wants you to know him. So the creator of the universe knows everything you've ever done, and he loves you, and he says, and I want you to know me intimately and deeply and fully. And so I challenged us. There are some ways to get to know God, like getting into God's word, because that's how he reveals himself to us in prayer. And there are these things we can do to know God. And there are some incredible perks to knowing God. Um, one of them is we experience God's healing in our life. When we know God, he gives us a sense of purpose. Uh, he grows our capacity to love and acceptance, and he makes us part of God's family, and he gives us community, and he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and in eternity, we're with him in heaven. There are some incredible 
gifts to being a follower of Jesus and being in relationship with him because of his love, and it's not something that we can earn. No one can earn God's love. God's already given it to us. He can't love you more than he loves you right now. And even if you don't know God right now, don't want to know God, don't love God, don't want anything to do with God, I can tell you this, God loves you. God knows you, and God wants to have a relationship with you, and nothing you can do, no, no distance you can run from him could make him love you less, and that's an incredible thing, and we cannot earn that love. He gives it to us. It's called grace, but we can respond to that love, and sometimes responding to that love can be uncomfortable. Last week, we looked at this woman who had experienced God's forgiveness in such a way, and she was, um, she was a sinner. Most likely, she had a, a really sordid sexual past and, and even a sexual present, uh, and yet she loved God and was experiencing God's forgiveness in such a way that it, it drew her to Jesus, and she broke an expensive thing of perfume, and she dumped it on his feet, and she was crying because of this relationship and wetting his feet, and then she took her hair, and she cleaned off his muddy, wet feet with her hair, and Jesus said this about this woman. He said, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Her sins have been forgiven and her love for me, her desire to follow me, her desire to do anything for me shows how much she's been forgiven. When we experience God's God's forgiveness and his healing and his love in a very real way, and I was talking to our staff team last week about this word intimate because for some of us, intimate has all sorts of weird connotations. We don't know what to do with that word, and, you know, it's kind of been taken over by our culture to mean certain things. But really, I can't think of a better word. When we experience God in an intimate way, in a real way, in a life-changing way, uh, it does something in our lives, and it makes us want to give ourselves back to Him. But here's the problem. We, as a people, and as a society, and specifically our culture, we're predisposed to comfort, And then we experience God's incredible love, and his love sometimes draws us into uncomfortable places. And then we have a decision to make. What are we going to do? Are we going to to live comfortably and try to grab a little bit of God's love? Or are we going to experience God's love in such a way that it makes our life sometimes uncomfortable, but, but better? Jesus talked a lot about this tension, and he doesn't pull any punches. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus says to his disciples, those are his followers, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you would be in this category. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself or herself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Have you ever, have you ever wondered how the cross became such a symbol of beauty? Some of you women, and maybe some of you guys are wearing crosses around your necks right now. We wear crosses in our ears. We have a cross up on stage. Um, we see crosses all over the place. They, they're sought after. They're beautiful. They're nice. They're jewelry. We like them. Have you ever wondered how the cross became a symbol of beauty? A little background. In Jesus' day, some 2,000 years ago, the cross was anything but beautiful. The cross was a torture chamber. The cross was a device that the Romans had figured out how to kill you in literally the most painful way imaginable. Have you ever wondered how that became a symbol of beauty? This this thing that represented pain and sorrow, uh, this thing that if you were sent to the cross represented not only your death, but the death of a dream, uh, that that meant mourning, uh, that meant torture, how it became a symbol of beauty. 
because we don't, we don't think of these types of death machines as symbols of beauty today. Like, you can't imagine wearing an electric chair around your neck and thinking, oh, that is, that's a beautiful thing. I love that electric chair. Where did you get it? Oh, man, is that, is that white gold? That electric chair, that's beautiful. What carrot is that? No, you wouldn't do it. But the cross was like that, although worse, because with the electric chair, they just electrocute you till you're dead and you're done. But, but imagine an electric chair where they would electrocute you till you're almost dead, and then they let you sit there writhing in pain for hours or days as your body cooked from the inside, and then you ultimately slowly died. That was the cross. It was not a quick death. It was a, a long death. And so I, I'm looking at the cross, and I'm wondering, what made the cross a symbol of beauty? And here's the answer. And by the way, if you're new to church, this is always the answer. So just get ready. Uh, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is always the answer in church. It's always a safe bet. Just say Jesus. Um, just say amen. That's always a good way to go. Jesus loved God the Father, and he knew God the Father, and he experienced God the Father's love in such a way that it caused him to obey God the Father into some uncomfortable places. Uh, on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he was praying to God the Father, saying, saying, if there's any way that this could pass from me, let this cup pass from me. This is going to be painful beyond anything I can imagine. The separation I'm going to feel, the pain I'm going to feel is going to be immense. He said, but not my will, God. I want your will. He knew God's love, and he trusted God, and that, that love and that trust for God caused him to do something incredibly painful and uncomfortable, to give his life on a cross. But on the other side of that decision to follow Jesus, to follow after his heavenly Father, was beauty. See, on the other side of uncomfortable obedience is, is usually an abundant life with God and a beautiful life. Jesus said yes to his Father, on the other side of that was forgiveness. On the other side of that was an open door for us to experience the Holy Spirit in our lives in a way that we never could before, in a way that people for centuries had wanted to, to actually know that God's Spirit was living in them and guiding them to truth and giving them power. On the other side of the cross, on the other side of this uncomfortable obedience, was an opportunity for every single one of us to know God in a very real way. And up to that point, that was a limited experience for a certain group of people, but God opened the door through Jesus' death on the cross. See, obeying God can be incredibly uncomfortable. It's not supposed to be comfortable. The cross is not, an uncomf- is not a comfortable thing. It was a symbol of torture. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your, your cross and deny yourself and follow me. But on the other side of uncomfortable obedience is an abundant life with God, is a, a life where God's doing miraculous things and healing us and doing incredible things. Here's what I want to do. Right now, I just want to pause, and we're going to take communion together. Because I want us to first, in this, in this time together this morning, remember God's sacrifice. That even though it was painful, and even though it was hard, and even though it cost Jesus everything, he gave his life on the cross because he knew his heavenly Father, and because he knew God, he wanted to obey God and to walk with God into uncomfortable places, and that changed everything for human history. And what God did through Jesus on the cross in bringing him to a place of incredible abundance, he can do for you. But it's not going to be easy. And actually, I've been writing the sermon, and this is one of the few sermons where, uh, as I prepared to preach it, I was a little bit terrified of how you would respond. But I love you, and I want you to know the truth of God. And so we're going to go there today. But before we do, I just want us to rest in God. So we're going to take a piece of bread, and if you're new to Christianity, the bread represents Jesus, God in the flesh, his body being torn apart and given for us. Then we're going to take a cup of juice, which Jesus says represents his blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins when he obeyed God to the point of giving his life on the cross. 
so that we could have a real relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that changes everything. So would you pray with me, and we're going to take communion, and then we're going to sing a song together and then continue on. Lord, thank you so much that you give us an example to follow. Jesus, that you knew God the Father's love so much that you were willing to obey him even when it was uncomfortable and painful and hard. And because of that obedience, you changed human history and you made a way for us to come to know you. And so today as we get into this topic, I ask that you would uh, walk with us in this process. Remind us of the depth of your love for us so that we can walk into places that might be uncomfortable because we trust that on the other side of uncomfortable obedience is an abundant life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' invitation is simply this. Come, come and know me. Come to the cross where you experience forgiveness and love and grace. And then as you've experienced my love, take up your own cross. Deny yourself and follow me. Take up your cross. Literally, die. Die to your old way of thinking, to your old way of speaking, to your old preferences and ideas and opinions anytime that they don't line up with mine. Deny them and follow me. And I don't want to skip past this because this is where, where the cross and comfort really come to a head. Jesus says anytime as followers, as we know him, anytime that our preconceived ideas about how life works come in conflict with what God reveals about how life works. He says anytime that happens, deny your ideas for the sake of mine. Anytime you come up against something and you've had some ideas, some notions about the way that you should do marriage, parenting, work, finances, and they come up against what I say, deny yourself and follow me. And friends, that's uncomfortable. When there are inconsistencies with our lives and God's standard, and we are called to choose God's standard, that is uncomfortable. It's as if God says, listen, when you come to the cross, you get all of me. And what I want back is I want all of you, because what I'm going to do with all of you is something beautiful. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be like dying to your old way of living and being born into a new life with me. And you're going to have to learn things over again. And you're going to have to, to trust me just like a child trusts a parent when they're teaching a child how to walk. You're going to have to trust me as you walk in this new way of living. And fans, fans never do that. Fans want the cross. They come to Jesus. They, they love his forgiveness and his grace. But anytime their lives go against what God says, they choose their life. And so they live in this half-life where, where it's part me and it's part Jesus, and neither one's really in control, and neither one's really working well because I can't live two lives. It, it keeps this dichotomy. Either live my own life and do it the way I want, or live a Jesus life. But living this half-life, it's just not going to work. But, but fans live there, and then they go to church for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, and they say, you know what? God failed me. I tried church. I tried Christianity and it failed me. And the truth is, God didn't fail a fan. A fan didn't want to give up their comfort. What I'm going to do for the rest of the morning is I'm going to press into us a little bit. And I'm going to say some things that are going to be a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm going to say some things that are going to be a little bit controversial. And I'm going to say some things that are going to sting a little bit, uh, which is why I need, I need Jesus to speak right now. 
because he's, he's going to bring us face to face with some things that the world says and some things that, that he says. Uh, there's a book that came out a number of years ago. It was a psychology book called Vital Lies. And in Vital Lies, the basic premise is this, that each of us, every single one of us, myself included, has a handful of lies, two, three, four lies about the way that life works and about the way that we work that we believe are vital to our existence. We believe that if those lies were debunked, it would, it would shatter our life. And usually those lies are so deeply held, maybe they're passed from generation to generation, they're so deeply held that we don't even realize we have them until someone brings us face to face with the lie. And then we have a visceral response. We have an angry response. Uh, We have a hurt response because someone is threatening our lie. And that lie is the only thing that has sustained us. So what I'm going to do now is I am going to, um, I'm going to bring up some lies that our culture tells us. Only three. So don't worry, only three. Uh, I'm not going to mess with your whole life. Just three areas, three major areas that will affect you every day, but just three areas. And what I want you to do to the best of your ability is when you get a response that says, no, you cannot say that to me. Say, God, okay, open me up. Help me to be sensitive to what you would want me to hear because this is what Jesus says. In John chapter 8, verse 31, He's talking to a group of people, and he's talking to his followers, and he says, if you hold to my teaching, to the Bible, to what I say, then you're really my disciples, and then you'll know the truth, and that truth will set you free. He goes on uh, in John chapter 4, he's talking to some people who are fans of God, but not followers of God, and actually they're teaching people false things about God, and he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil, these people who are teaching false things. You want to carry out your father's desires. This is what, what, the, what God says about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there was no truth in him. When the devil lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three highly held, comfortable values that our culture sets up that we believe in, and we're going to say, are these true or are these a lie? And then we're going to put them up to what Jesus says, and we're just going to look at it together. So I'm going to do my best not to give you my opinions. I'm going to say, this is what our culture says. This is what Jesus says, and I'm going to let you wrestle with it. But if you have this visceral response, if you want to close down, and if you say, want to say to your spouse, I'm never coming back again, fight that and ask this question, is Jesus really telling the truth? And is he a loving God who gave his life on the cross for me to bring forgiveness of my sins and to change my life? Is he that or isn't he? Because either he is telling the truth and the devil is lying or the devil is telling the truth and Jesus is lying. And those are the only two options that we have. So here we go. I want to talk about three areas. And the first is finances. As it comes up, Push it down. Here's what the world says about finances. It's all yours. Do with it whatever you want. It's all yours. Do with it whatever you want. If you can earn it or if you can acquire it, it is yours. The assumption is that it's all for my consumption. And the problem with that is the more we consume, the more we want. And consumption is an appetite that's never fully and finally satisfied. So we go, go, go. We want more and more and more. And because of that mindset that it's all mine and it's all for my consumption and we always want more, both our government and our individuals buy into the next lie, which is debt is something that everyone has to live with. That's what our culture tells us. Debt is just something that you live with. It's something to be managed, not something to be eliminated. After all, we all have desires. We all want new cars, 
you know, a bigger house. We all want that trip to Disneyland or those other vacations. We all, we, we all want new clothes because, listen, it's a new season and it's getting cold next week and, and we need some new sweaters. You know, we need some new cardigans because our old cardigans aren't cutting it the way they used to. And so the world tells us it's yours. Do what you want with it. And if you don't have enough of it, borrow and get more so you can acquire more. Because the more stuff you have, eventually you'll get satisfied. But the lie is that you'll be satisfied. The truth is you won't ever be satisfied. And so here's the mirror. The world says it's all yours. God says it belongs to God. God says money belongs to him. And it's on loan for us to manage wisely. Money's not ours. It belongs to God. It's on loan for us to manage wisely wisely. So the assumption is that it's not all for your consumption. The assumption is that it's on loan from God. It's all His. He's given it to you for a season, and He wants you to do certain things with it. For example, one of the things He wants you to do with it, He wants you to give the first 10% of it back to God, generally speaking, through the local church. It's called tithing. And, and some of us believe the lie that it's all mine. And so when we hear anything about tithing, we think, I'm never giving God some of my money, especially not 10% of my money. But the truth is, it's not your money. It's God's money, and it's on loan for us to manage. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim with new wine. He's, he's talking to an agricultural society who harvested their fields in sections each day, and he said, when you get to the first 10% of your field being harvested, give it over to God. And trust that he will take care of the other 90% and take care of you with it. Because remember, it's all God's. And he says, give part of it back to him. God also says things about money like this. Live within your means and don't go into debt. He says, debt makes you a, a slave. Proverbs 22 says this, the rich rule over the poor. The borrower is a slave, a slave to the lender. That's why they call it MasterCard. It becomes your master. <laughs> you are a slave to it. Hey, who's your master? Is it Jesus? No, you pull out your wallet. It's MasterCard. MasterCard is my master because I'm a slave to the lender because my mind is always thinking about how to get out of debt, what I have to do, how do I manage this, how much do I have to pay off? And my wife or my husband and I, we get in fights all the time about money and it's killing us and it's hurting our marriage and we don't know what to do and we don't agree about any of it because we don't think that it's ultimately God's. We think it's ours and he has some and I have some and the kids want some, but ultimately it's, it's it's our money. And Jesus says, it's not your money. It's my money. So give it back to me. I, I didn't go hard. There's a part in the scripture where he says, you're robbing me because you're not giving me back my tithe. But I didn't want to go there. That's a, let's not get crazy. Let's just ease into this. He says, give it back to me and experience my blessing because it's not your money. But the world says it is your money. Sometimes following Jesus with our finances, it's uncomfortable. Let's be honest. Some of you are here and you're thinking right now, I can't. I can't give 10% and I can't get out of debt. And I want to say, there are, there are probably a handful of you in here, and that's true, right now. Maybe right now you can't get out of debt. Maybe you're a single parent and you're struggling just to get food on the table, and right now you can't. But for the majority of us, I would say 95% of us, we can. We can. We own 
$200 smartphones and multiple computers, and we pay $70 a month to keep our phone. And we, we have that, that thing called a landline, but no one wants to use that. No one even knows our home phone number. We have our cell phone, and, and, and we take vacations, and we buy new clothes, and, and we eat out, and we do all these other things. And then it comes time to give 10% back to God, and it's like, God, I'm out. Sorry, boss. I don't have anything for you. That's why Jesus says, give me the first 10%, live off the other 90 so that if someone runs out, it's going to be your clothing budget, not your Savior. Some of us, that vital lie is creeping up in us right now, and we're saying, I don't like, when is this service over? I've got two more. Some of us think, I cannot get out of debt because my money is tied up in all these other things. The truth is, you can get out of debt. I talked to some friends on Saturday night who had a mountain of debt. And over the last couple of years, they have worked hard and trusted God, and they never stopped giving faithfully, even above the tithe, and they're now debt-free. And I literally broke into applause for them in their house on Saturday night because they got out of debt. Because the truth is, you can, you can do it with God, but it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to mean saying no to certain vacations, maybe selling that car and buying a beater car for a while, maybe moving out of your house and moving into a rental— but you can get out of debt and then you won't be a slave to the lender anymore. MasterCard will not be your master. Jesus Christ will be your master and you'll be free. Remember what we said on the other side of uncomfortable obedience is an abundant life with God. Imagine being debt-free. Imagine not having those fights anymore at night when the kids go to bed. Imagine not waking up with that stress of how am I going to pay those bills. Uh, Imagine coming to church and, and when they say it's time for the offering, you don't feel guilty you have a sense of anticipation. I get to worship God by giving God back a portion of what he's given to me. It's an incredible gift. Another big area that, uh, um, that we fight against is our body. Our body. The world says, your body belongs to you, so do whatever you want with it. The outpouring of that is you can eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, smoke whatever you want, do whatever you want. And that's a lie. And that lie is killing us, literally, physically killing us. But it's a vital lie. And if someone ever dared to say, hey, your eating habits, that's not healthy. We have a visceral response. And we say, it's my body. Don't tell me what to do with my body. I know because that was me. Ten months ago when we decided we were going to have a healthy living teaching series, I almost pulled the plug on the whole series because I didn't want people telling me what I could eat. Because I am skinny, and I can eat out if I want to. And God, through my staff team, slapped me across the face with the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm serious. They said, no, your body is not yours. Read the Bible. It's not yours. So we think I can eat, drink, smoke, whatever I want. Um, And then we also believe this lie. I can give my body physically to whomever I want because it's my body. But God says this, your body is a gift from him. Your body is the place where God's spirit takes up residence. First Corinthians says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of their body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then catch this part, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of God's spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Do you not know that you're not your own? You were bought with a price. You're God's. It's his body. Therefore, honor God with your body. Because of that, Jesus says, you need to honor me with the things you eat and the things you drink. And you have to honor me with whether or not you smoke. 
You have to honor me when you exercise, and that's uncomfortable. Listen, I hate getting up at 5.30 to exercise. In fact, that was the only blessing of breaking my leg. (laughs) And now it's done. And yesterday I started exercising for the first time. It was not fun. But my body's not my own, and I want to be here for 30, 40, 50 years. I want to be your pastor for the next 40 years. I want to see my daughter grow up and get to at least 30 and then get married and have kids. I want to see that. You want to see that. You want to see your kids get old. You don't want to die young because you're not healthy. And and single people, I want to say this to you. Your body is not yours to be given to whoever you want. Your body is God's. And he says this to you. He says, give your body to your husband or wife in the context of marriage alone. Some of you are saying, have you seen my girlfriend? That's hard. That's uncomfortable. That means we have to change some patterns. I want to say this. It is uncomfortable sometimes to follow Jesus, but on the other side of uncomfortable obedience is an abundant life with God. Imagine saying to your spouse, like I was able to say to my wife, and she was able to say back to me, you were the only person who has ever seen me this way. Some of you hear that and you think, do people still do that? Yeah, yeah, followers of Jesus still do that. And if you're here today and and that just brings up a whole bunch of feelings for you, I want to say this. God knows you and he couldn't love you more than he does right now and he has forgiven you for any sexual sin that you have committed or are committing and his call to you now is to change your way of thinking and to change your way of living and to stop now. Be, Be born again in every area of your life, including your virginity, and give it back to God and honor God. And the last one is, is this, and then I promise I'll, I'll wait till next Sunday. Um, by the way, next Sunday I'm talking to us because many of us are here, sitting here thinking, I can't do that. Next Sunday I'm going to address the question, I'm going to address the question, can you actually live this way, and how do we live this way, and what does it mean to live this way? So if you're sitting here thinking, you're telling me what I have to do, but you aren't telling me how to do it, next week we'll talk about how to do it. So make sure you come back next week. The last one is relationships. The world says the goal of relationships is to make my life happier, to make my life better. The goal of relationships is about what I can get. So when a relationship gets difficult, I get out and I find an easier one. Whether it's a friendship or a marriage or a relationship with my kids or my parents or my coworkers or my boss, when it gets hard, you get out. And it says if someone hurts me, I cut and run. I don't forgive. I hold on to a grudge. I don't let it go. And I just hold the power. And Jesus says that is a lie. And if you hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness and grudges, you are killing yourself. You're not hurting them. They don't even know you're mad at them. You are hurting yourself. So Jesus says this, the goal of relationships is to help me become more like Jesus Christ in my character and in my lifestyle. Proverbs 27 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. Friends, authentic relationships take time. They cannot be microwaved. They just can't. So if you cut and run every time a relationship gets hard, you will never have an authentic, real relationship. They take time, and they take grace, and they take forgiveness. So God says, forgive each other if someone sins against you. I'm reading through Proverbs right now, which is why you're seeing a lot of this come up. But one of the things I read yesterday was something to the effect of, um, it is good for a man to overlook another man's faults. Just to wipe it away. Just to say, God, I trust you to be their judge. I don't have to be their judge anymore. Man, there's freedom there. There's freedom in deep relationships, but they take time. I have one friend who lived up here for eight years, and he became my best friend. And when he moved away, it was like losing a brother. 
because you can't just find a best friend. Those relationships take time. And if we cut and run every time relationships get hard because we think the goal of relationships is to make me happy, our marriages will be hurt because of it. Our friendships will be hurt because of it. We won't have a relationship with our kids. We'll never stay in a job longer than two or three years. God says, have authentic relationships. And then he says this, if relationships are so important, then we should use our gifts and our abilities to bless other people by serving in ministry. That's what God says. And some of you are thinking, I don't have time for that. Bill Hybels, uh, who's a pastor in the Midwest, said this, I find that I always have time for the things that I value. I always have time for the things that I value, which means I must value Survivor because I always watch it. I'll be honest. (laughs) It's not a question of time. Do I have time to serve in the church? Do I have time to do ministry? It's not a question of time. It's a question of priorities. Do I prioritize people over my time? And how do I do it? And how do I do it wisely? And we give whole sermons about boundaries and this and that, but the question is not time. The question is priorities and people. Are people your priority? Or are you your priority? Because if you're your priority, you're going to end up alone and sad and lonely and feeling like the church failed you and God failed you and everyone failed you. Following God is uncomfortable. But on the other side of uncomfortable obedience is an abundant life with God. And if we follow God in those three areas, now all of a sudden our, our finances are better. Even though it was uncomfortable, we feel free financially. We can give more. We can love more. We can serve more. Uh, our relationships are better. We're healthier. We're living longer. We're seeing our kids grow up. Uh, we feel better about ourselves. We feel better physically. Because Jesus' way is so different than the way that the world thinks. And what I don't want is for us to spend the next 10 years at new life living half our way and half Jesus' way and feeling like that's what it means to be a follower of God. Jesus took up his cross, an implementation of torture and pain and death, and he turned it into something beautiful because he was obedient to God the Father. And whenever we're obedient to God the Father, he always makes something beautiful and abundant out of something that looks like death. And we can do this. We were created to do it. You were created to live a life with Christ. You were not created to live a life on your own, struggling and suffering and trying to figure it out. God has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ, and he's given us a way to live that's different, and it's not easy, but it's always right. And if you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, you literally just heard the hardest sell for Christianity that you ever will. And if you still want it, I can tell you this, it's the best life you could ever experience. It's not easy, but it's good and it's right and you live with your creator and you know him and he changes you and he changes the way you think and the way you act and he makes you into the man that you were created to be and the woman that you were created to be. And he takes you out of slavery to sin and he gives you freedom in life. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, you can say yes to him right now and start this journey right now. So would you join me? I want to pray for you. If you're ready to say yes to Jesus, you can whisper this prayer with me. If you sense he's calling you to himself, if this makes sense, even if it doesn't make sense, but you just know it's true, God loves you so much. He couldn't love you more than he does, and he's calling you to himself. So you you can respond to him by praying the simple prayer, saying, Lord Jesus, today I say yes. Yes, I want to respond to your invitation. So would you come into my life, Lord? 
Would you forgive me of my sins, the things that, that have separated me from you? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you lead me to the abundant life with you? And would you give me the courage to say yes to you when my old way of thinking does not line up with you? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.